All right, Hebrews 20.20. We see Jesus, this is increment 71, and it has to do with the boast of our hope, or our hope, which happens to be a boast. And we'll be going to Hebrews chapter 3 and a couple other places. In fact, we'll be going to Acts. Now, we want to remind everybody that we are now doing the Treasures for Children project that we do every year. We're not missing a beat this year. And you'll be able to call the ministry number, the church number on the website, if you want to bring some toys in for the children of this area. And you'll be able to make their day on Christmas morning. All right, let's take a few moments, silent preparation. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. And we thank you for your son. We entrust our spirit into your hands today in order to be encouraged strongly by your word. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to begin by taking a side road for a while to consider a man who's mentioned 27 times in a document that happens to have 27 books. It's called the New Testament. His name is Barnabas. And in the very first mention of his name in Acts, which is 436 of Acts, his name means the exhorter. It's also translated in some translations as the son of encouragement. And I found this fascinating because the book of Hebrews is billed as a word of encouragement. At the very end, the writer says that you have borne this word of encouragement. And in fact, in 1322, he calls it that. In 1319, he uses the word parakaleo for encouragement. And he does so throughout the document called Hebrews, which is an anonymous document. Barnabas' special gift and skill was to impart spiritual incentive to congregations who had already been evangelized and responded with faith to the gospel, but who were in need of encouragement. He was a native of Cyprus, and he was a Levite, which means he came from the tribe of Levi and would certainly have been knowledgeable of the Levitical priesthood, which is dealt with fairly extensively in the middle and late chapters of Hebrews, and very importantly so. Barnabas' actions and ministry were in keeping with his nickname, therefore, the encourager, the exhorter, the son of encouragement. This is fascinating because Hebrews, again, is billed by its author. It's called, at the end, this word of encouragement or a message of exhortation. It would have been fitting if a man named the son of encouragement had written it. Barnabas himself is mentioned 23 times in Acts alone, Luke's sequel. And the last mention is when he was separated from Paul in their missionary journey and departed to Cyprus back to his home area with Mark, the nephew of Paul. That's Acts 15.39. He's mentioned by Paul again in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 6 where he is along with Paul as one who was required to go on working for a living during his missionary travels. And finally, he's mentioned in Galatians three times 
He goes up to Jerusalem with Paul as a sponsor and patron of Paul because no one could really believe that Paul was truly converted, being the enemy of the church that he was for so many years. But the last mention of Barnabas by Paul was an unfortunate negative reference because in Galatians 2.13, Paul says that even Barnabas was carried away by fear of those of the circumcision who came to Antioch from Jerusalem. So he was intimidated by some spiritual heavyweights, which is something we can never be if we're going to be true preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to do it fearlessly and without favoring men. If we, as Paul said in Galatians 1.10, if I did this to please people, I would no longer be the servant or the slave of Christ. Peter was also among those who participated in this hypocrisy in Antioch. In fact, he was the ringleader of it, according to Galatians 2.11 to 14. Peter also known as Cephas, was rebuked for it publicly by Paul. Paul had had enough. He saw the preachers there, the missionaries who had been eating with Gentiles, no longer doing so under pressure from an entourage from Jerusalem. He couldn't take it anymore, so he stood up and confronted Peter right on the spot. We know, thankfully, that Peter recovered from this failure. And he went on to write First and Second Peter, and in fact, in Second Peter, verses 15 and 16 of his last chapter, he commended Paul, calling him our beloved brother, Paul, and he called his epistles a wisdom or an insight that was granted to him. Now, in my view, nothing stands in the way of the hopeful thought that Barnabas also recovered whether he went on to write an important word of encouragement to a particular assembly who needed it, well, that's not known. However, just speculating about Barnabas is profitable, not least because we can be sure of one thing and one thing only. Somebody like Barnabas wrote Hebrews. Somebody like Barnabas wrote Hebrews. In fact, Barnabas, and I've studied, I'm studying now six or seven commentaries on Hebrews, and more are coming. Barnabas is one of the candidates who's often put forward by commentators all the way back in the third or fourth centuries, all the way to our present time, as a possible author of Hebrews. Whether or not he was is not easily provable, so I wouldn't be dogmatic about it. However, it is clear from the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit used him effectively to strongly encourage assemblies of believers in Christ. We see him in action, and this is where I was really impressed the other day. Surprisingly, I wasn't going to do this, but in my study I was very impressed by Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 23. Now, in Acts 11, 19, Luke tells us that believers had been scattered from Jerusalem into various parts of the Greco-Roman world at the time because of the persecution that followed Stephen's death. They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus again, and Antioch of Syria. They effectively became missionaries, but it says 
at first in 1120 of Acts that they preached the word of God only to Jews. But in Acts 11.20, Luke tells us that some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Hellenists about the Lord Jesus. Now, Hellenists are probably not only Greeks, but Greek-speaking Jews, as we'll see. The Hellenists probably included those who were very well aware of what we call the Septuagint, which was called Septuagint because it was developed by 70 scholars in the 3rd century B.C. for Alexandrian Jews who came from Egypt. Greek-speaking Jews received the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And this is, the, in fact, the version of the Scriptures that's quoted extensively throughout Hebrews and exclusively. So they're called Hellenists to distinguish them from Aramaic-speaking Jewish people. So notice, if, you, if you're following along, in Acts 11:21 to 23, it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. This report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they, well, they did something smart here, they sent forth, and the Greek word is ex apostello, they sent forth Barnabas to Antioch. I'm saying this because even though we're not sure of it and don't make a dogmatic point of it, we can imagine Barnabas writing this epistle to a church in Antioch at the time. Now, it says in verse 23, when he arrived and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced and exhorted them, another word for encouraged, them all to continue in the Lord with purpose of heart. Now, that's the whole thing that's happening in Hebrews. People who have been awakened to faith and gifted with faith are being called to continue in the Lord with purpose of heart. Hebrews 3.6 says to keep holding fast to the boastful hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Whatever proof can be presented for or against the authorship of Hebrews by Barnabas, and I'm still of the opinion that we can't know yet who that was, but whatever the opinion of the, for or against the authorship of Hebrews by Barnabas, one thing is sure. Again, what Barnabas, the son of encouragement, as he's called, did for the churches in Antioch, Derby. Lystra and Iconium, Acts 14, 20 to 22. For there he and Paul encouraged, again the word is used, parakaleo in the Greek, P-A-R-A-K-A-L-E-O, in Acts 14, 22, as it's used in Hebrews 13, 19 and 13, 22. In Antioch, Derby, Lystra and Iconium, he and Paul encouraged or imparted incentive to the believers there to, quote, continue in the faith and telling them that through much tribulation they would enter into the kingdom of God. And what they did in those churches at Antioch, Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, the unknown author of Hebrews did, 
for the unidentified assembly of believers who were addressed by this word of encouragement. I think it was left unidentified as an assembly because it's so fitting for assemblies today. And I think that the author is remaining anonymous because those who do the encouragement today should be PTs, pastor teachers, pastor theologians across this world, especially now and especially as we are entering into a phase which might involve persecution like it's not been known before. Antioch in Syria was the third largest city at the time in the Greco-Roman civilization. Alexandria in Egypt, now that's again, Antioch, lots of A's today. Antioch in Syria was the third largest city of the Greco-Roman civilization at the time of the writing of Hebrews. Alexandria in Egypt was the second largest city. Alexandria happened to be the city that's most connected with the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament scriptures. Again, you should know that the translation was developed by 70 scholars, hence it's called Septuagint, and it was made particularly for Greek-speaking Jews in Alexandria. And this is the translation, or one very like it, that's used in the quotations, many of which appear in Hebrews. Apollos, there's another A, A-P-O-L-L-O-S, is another famous preacher who came from Alexandria. So did Clement of Alexandria later. In the first of ten mentions of Apollos in the New Testament, he is introduced as, quote, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, a man of great learning who had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. That's Acts 18.24. You can imagine Apollos is also a popular candidate, speaking in an election season, for the authorship of Hebrews, as we've noted. Neither of these guys, however, have been convincing to me as being the authors because there's some things that work against it too. But nevertheless, it's good to speculate about it. Rome, of course, was the biggest city in the Greco-Roman world at the time. And at the, writing, the time of the writing of Hebrews, and Antioch seems to be one that keeps on being the focus here in Acts and elsewhere. Antioch was a city of about a half a million people at the time, which is a pretty good urban center. And the city that would eventually replace Jerusalem as the hub for Christianity. So you can imagine maybe a house church of Christians in Antioch at the time flagging a little bit in their spiritual progress and needing a little bit of a letter like Hebrews. Who knows? But it was, Antioch was about five miles from a famous temple. Here's some more A words from the center of uh the center of Antioch, from the center there was five miles away a famous temple to pagan deities. One was Artemis, the pagan goddess of the moon, of hunting, and of chastity. Apollo, the Greek god of the sun and of light, who presented an ideal moral and physical specimen, supposedly. And Astarte, so we have Artemis, Apollo, and Astarte, the pagan goddess of war, and sexual love. You can see Hebrews 13.4 about that topic. Antioch was also the seat of the Roman government in Syria. So you can imagine the Roman government was a sponsor of the divinity of Caesar 
he was called, among other things, the Son of God or the Son of the Divine. So one can easily imagine the cultural, religious, and social pressure that was on those in Antioch whose primary allegiance was to and their confession about Jesus, the Son of God. All of this fits nicely with Hebrews 3.6, and that's why I took that side road in the first place. Otherwise, I wouldn't have wasted my time or your time. It fits nicely with Hebrews 3.6, where we left off in our verse-by-verse study, where a parallel exists between the exhortation by Barnabas to the churches, especially in Antioch, to continue in the Lord with purpose of heart and to continue in the faith, that's parallel with the notion that those who are of the house of God in Hebrews 3.6 hold fast to what the Greek actually says, the boast of their hope. It means it's a hope that you should hold with the same confidence that you'd hold with boasting about something. The first paragraph of Hebrews 3, chapter 3, which is 3, 1 to 6, introduces the house of God and of Christ, the topic, and characterizes the members of this house as those who, quote, hold fast to the boast of our hope. How can you tell someone is of the household of God? They hold fast firmly to the boast of their hope. They're not ashamed. The first paragraph of Hebrews chapter 3 introduces the house of God and of Christ, and characterizes the members as holding fast to this boastful or confident hope. That's how we show ourselves to be God's house, Christ's house, what I call the house of the risen sun. Not the house of the rising sun by the animals, but the house of the risen sun, who is also the uncreated sun. We demonstrate ourselves indeed to be that house or of that household. It's also called the house of faith in Galatians 6.10. We demonstrate ourselves or show ourselves to be that if we hold fast to what the Greek calls to kalkema tes elpidos, the boast of our hope or our boastful hope. This hope is actually something, better yet, someone to boast about. That implies that we, the readers, hold fast our hope with the confidence and courage of one who brags on something or somebody. Our hope, then, is a confident hope, an assured hope, not a timid one. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul, and that's another passage that I find wonderfully parallel to this passage. And again, I keep going off the road here, but it ends up being things that are very important and correlating with our subject. Philippians chapter 3. There the Apostle Paul was speaking against a group of false teachers whom he called feral dogs, evil workers, and mutilators. That's not very nice names, but we're used to it because we're in a political season. He was speaking there of a group of missionaries who preached a gospel, a false gospel. And Paul was in fierce opposition with them because they preached a a false gospel which led people to boast in adherence to the Mosaic law rather than in Christ. 
beginning with submission to circumcision or ritual circumcision in order to be considered righteous. Against them, these missionaries, the apostle made this bold assertion about himself and the saints at Philippi in chapter 3 and verse 3. He said, but we are the circumcision. He called them the concision in verse 2, the concision, which means a group of mutilators. We call it mutilation incorporated because they perverted the ritual of circumcision by making it the means of justification of male believers. And that, of course, takes away from the cross. And so Paul called that circumcision mutilation. We are the circumcision, Paul said. Here's how you identify us. We serve by the Spirit of God. We, what? Boast in Christ Jesus. There it is. Cow, cow, menoi, en Christo Jesu. We boast, there's that word again, in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, he goes on to explain what that confidence in the flesh means. Tribal membership, racial membership, ethnicity, performance according to the law, ritual performance, moral performance. That's all the flesh. We put no, I like to say, zero confidence in the flesh. So first he says, we are the circumcision against those false teachers whom he called the mutilators who make their converts their mutilation. Paul isn't knocking circumcision here as a Jewish rite or ritual. Rather, he's fiercely opposing a set of missionary teachers who build themselves as Christian missionaries who were requiring circumcision of male Gentiles as a necessary act leading to their justification in God's sight. He viewed this as mutilation and not true circumcision. In Romans and Galatians, as here, Paul strenuously opposed these teachers and their evidently popular leader. Thank God Paul was not starstruck by popular Christian preachers and that he could withstand them if they were wrong. And I would hope he'd do the same for me. And I would do the same for him. But these teachers were a constant thorn in Paul's side. In fact, when he said there was a thorn in his side, that's partly what he meant. Second thing about this passage, the real apostle to the Gentiles, that's Paul, according to Romans eleven thirteen, said, we serve, and that's a word for worship, we serve or we worship by the Spirit. And that's the same thing Jesus said. True worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. In John 4.23, it's what the Hebrews author called serving the living God in Hebrews 9.14. And as we're going to see, that's by hearing what the Holy Spirit says day by day in Hebrews 3.7. The Spirit of God is going to be a major subject very shortly if you look down the line in Hebrews right into 3.7, where he's called the Holy Spirit. Third thing about Philippians and its connection to Hebrews, and it's most important to our present concern, Paul says that we boast in Christ Jesus. He uses that verb form, 
kalkema, which means to brag or to boast. It also indicates a kind of confidence that is very strong and assured. Then he concludes by saying, we put no confidence in the flesh, and by that he included confidence in the right, R-I-T-E, of circumcision. But we're most interested here in boast in Christ Jesus. This finds its roots, as we discovered, in Romans, in Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, where valid boasting is in the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man in his strength or the rich man in his wealth. But if you have to boast, and everybody does have to boast about something, boast in me, says the Lord. That's Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. The Septuagint has it in Jeremiah 9, 22 and 23, not to be confused. The valid boasting in the Lord is a subject in Romans 3, 27, 5, 2, 5, 3. It's also found in 1 Corinthians 1, 31 and 2 Corinthians 10, 17, as well as Galatians 6, 14, where Paul said, may it never be that I should ever boast in anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which I have been crucified to the world and the world crucified to me. In Hebrews 3, 6, the members of the household of Christ show themselves to be his house. They demonstrate as being from that house and members of that household precisely by holding their confident and courageous hope, even against opposition. Now, I'm going to illustrate this with, some present, with a present scenario for our country, at least for the USA. We've been living through a pandemic and an election season. In some cases, there's not much difference. In the past months, many people have shown their support for one candidate or another. Some have kept their support for one candidate in particular close to the vest, as we call it, for fear of some kind of reprisal, of being fired, unfriended, canceled, trolled, doxxed, maligned, or in some cases the object of violence. Others have fearlessly boasted for their candidate, no matter who it is, by lawn signs, or banners, hats, t-shirts, enthusiasm at rallies, etc. Now, before you think I'm making a political statement, I'm not. We're all political beings. We have to be. But not in the pulpit so much. My point is not political here, however. I'm simply using the current inflammatory political and ideological climate of this time in American history as a, what we call, or what people call, a teaching moment. To show that the PT who wrote Hebrews is encourages, encouraging his readers to hold fast to a courageous and confident and publicly held hope in Christ Jesus, and not to shrink in shame at expressing their allegiance to him despite the inevitable social shaming and reproach that such a boastful confidence invites. So what he encourages in his time, I encourage in my time. The recipients of this epistle had already experienced some of this shaming. 
Years before, some had actually had their property confiscated and were sent to prison. They were evidently facing an escalation of opposition in which it was likely that they would actually have to make their allegiance to Jesus as the Son of God known even in official court situations. The first epistle attributed to Peter, and 1 Peter has many parallels to Hebrews, as we've seen and we'll see again. 1 Peter was written just into such a situation. His readers were experiencing, he called it, grief in various trials, which the apostle said were necessary in order that the authenticity of their faith would be exhibited to have praise and honor and glory. Please notice honor and glory. Doxan kai time. It's actually glory and honor, just exactly as we see it in Hebrews 2.9, as well as Hebrews 2.7. And 3 3. That your the genuine authenticity of your faith will be made manifest at a certain moment in the future called the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The universal appearing of him when every eye sees him, every tongue acknowledges him, every knee genuflects to him. That's first Peter one seven also, which talks about at the revelation. Of Jesus Christ. That's when people's faith is going to be shown and appear and manifest as genuine. And there will be also a lot of shame there because people will back away from him in shame because their faith was not strong or genuine or they backed off because of social pressure in their lives so they back away from the Lord in his appearing. You can find this out in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, Revelation 1, 7, Zechariah 12, 10, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Titus 2, 13, Hebrews 9, 28, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, just a few off the top of my head. Peter counseled his readers during this time, which he called a fiery ordeal, in which, in that case, the fire of Rome was being blamed on Christians. Peter counseled his readers to, quote, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and be ready to give an answer for the what? The hope that you have, that you hold. That's 1 Peter 3.15. See the parallel there. He anticipated that they would be officially asked that question by people in Roman authority or at the councils called the Sanhedrin. More importantly, we will all appear at a courtroom situation called the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.10-15, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Romans 14.10-12. And so the appearance or the revelation of Jesus Christ is said to be with fire. The fire will not only consume all that is inauthentic, but it will also reveal that which has already been through the fire, refined and tested and found to be genuine. So the fire, of course, is God's love. Our God is a consuming fire and God is love. Don't contradict each other. 1 John 4, 8, Hebrews 12, 29. So 
consider this pairing, this pair, P-A-I-R. One, we boast in the hope. Two, we boast in Christ Jesus. There's no contradiction there either. Add them up. We boast in Christ Jesus, our hope, capital H-O-P-E. Once again, the pastoral epistles come to our aid. See, we're taking a ride through all the scriptures here today. 1 Timothy 1.1, my translation reads like this. Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus by command of our Savior and Christ Jesus, our hope. Notice it. Christ Jesus, our hope. Christu Jesu tes elpidos hemon. Now there's one more point I want to make about the opening paragraph of Hebrews 3 before we move on into the next section. Remember, this is only our 71st hour in Hebrews. We've got a long ways to go. This is the 71st increment. So there's one more point. I hate to leave any of the verses here untreated in a thorough way, but we have to keep moving. I want to make one more point about the opening paragraph of Hebrews 3 before we move into the next section. The next section, 3, 7 to 19, and even beyond that, is what's known as a midrash, which is a Hebrew exposition of a, of a passage of Scripture. In this case, the passage will be Psalm 95, verses 7b through 11, which again in, appears in the Septuagint translation as Psalm 94, 7 through 11. But before we get there, in this paragraph, we're still working from a prophecy that was given through a man of God, an anonymous one, oddly enough, 1 Samuel 2.26 and following, 2.27, to Eli and his house of priests. He says, and this is 1 Samuel 2.35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Jesus is the priest, Hebrews 3.1, and everything that is in my heart he will do. And the second part of that, 1 Samuel 2.35, and I will make for him a faithful house. That's a household full of faithful members. And he will go on in the authority of Christ, of the Christ, my Christ, all his days. In other words, the priest is going to be the, his Christ. And the house is going to be a faithful house built for Christ, the priest. So this prophecy about Yahweh, the God of Israel, raising up a faithful priest and building for him a faithful house... That verse holds court all the way through Hebrews 3.6, from 3.1 to 6. And it conflates with Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7, in which Yahweh says of Moses, He is faithful in all my house. Moses is faithful in my house. He goes on to explain that Jesus is the son over the house. But the only one we know that is faithful in all the house, in all the house, is Moses. So God's intention for now is to make a house in which everybody in it is faithful and not just Moses. How does he do it? Well, by having all the house participate in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's how. We live by the faithfulness of the Son of God in Galatians 2.20. 
So now we know that Jesus is the faithful priest whom God raised up by bodily resurrection from the dead. We also know that Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Numbers 12, 7, quoted here in Hebrews 3, 2, and 3, 5. But let's consider that God said, I'm going to build for this faithful priest a faithful house, a household full of faithful people, faithful priests, really. So he says, a faithful house, that's Wikon Piston, O-I-K-O-N, house, P-I-S-T-O-N, faithful, Oikon Piston. So Paul may well have had this verse in mind when he dictated Galatians 6.10, speaking of the house of faith. Now, if you and I are astute and attentive, we should notice that the priest whom God raised up is faithful over the house. This is all in Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. And that Moses was one man who was faithful in all the house. But God's will is to build a house in which all the members of the house are faithful. Before the testimony that we find in, he, in Numbers twelve seven, remember, whenever a verse is quoted in the New Testament, we should check out the whole, fan out the whole context of that verse, back and forward, and look at the whole context of Numbers twelve seven. Just before that's given, and it's alluded to in Hebrews 3, 2, and 3, 5, of Moses being faithful in all God's house, Paul, Moses actually said in Numbers eleven twenty nine b he said this, if only all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would place his spirit on them. All the people. Moses wished for all of God's people to be prophets and all of them to have his spirit on them. And that has effectively come true in that God has put his Holy Spirit on all his people. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, of course, Joel 2.28. Instead of saying that only Moses is faithful in all of God's house, it will be said, all God's house is faithful. That's the final point I wanted to make in Hebrews 3.6. God intends for the entire house that he builds for his faithful priest, his son, to be faithful. To have faith, to have fidelity, and faithfulness. The way he does this, again, is to allow us all to live by the faithfulness of the Son of God and to be apportioned his faith, fidelity, and faithfulness in various measures. In this way, we are God's household of faith. So as we close, I want to consider one more passage in Hebrews. Remember, when we flex a little bit in the early chapters of Hebrews, we send blood throughout the rest of this, the body of this epistle. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 23, and see if you can pick up some common themes. Hebrews 10, 
because you see this whole letter is a homily or a sermon that hangs together as a strong word of encouragement, as Hebrews 6, 19 to 20 calls it, a strong word of encouragement, like Barnabas would give them, or Apollos would give them, or many of the other apostles would give them, like Peter or Paul. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23, I translated this from the Greek text just before coming here this morning, and it says, therefore, siblings or brothers and sisters, we have boastful confidence, joyous confidence, confident boldness, whatever you want to call it. In fact, this word parisian, P-A-R-R, long E-S-I-A-N, means freedom of speech. It's the most treasured right we have in our country, the United States of America. Boastful confidence or freedom of speech. And it means essentially more than that, though, because it means bold confidence. And then it says to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new, verse 20, and living way which he inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is, his flesh. In other words, the true holy of holies in heaven, the veil that kept us from it was torn when Christ was crucified and when he died and accepted our sins and died for our sins. He tasted death for everyone. Remember Hebrews 2.9. We see Jesus who made a little lower than the angels for a little while became flesh, became human in order to taste death for everyone. And when he did that, the veil was torn so that we could all approach by the blood of Jesus, his death, into the holy place of all. So, verse 20, by the new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. 21, and here we have, notice these tremendous parallels to Hebrews 3, 1 and following and a great priest over the house of God. This is hard to translate because he's going all the way back to we have boastful confidence, and then if we jump to 21, it would say, and a great priest, a great priest. We have boastful confidence and a great priest over the house of God. There it is again. See, he held this thought all the way from Hebrews 3. And so... What a disciplined guy this guy was. Verse 22, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in the full assurance of faithfulness with our hearts having been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed by purifying water. And that's not baptism. He's not talking about water baptism here. He's making an allusion to Leviticus 16.26 in which the priest who lets go of the goat to Azazel, there's a goat that is called the scapegoat. The sins are confessed on his head. He's sent into Azazel who is the spirit of the desert. The priest that sends the goat out into the desert never to be seen again, which is a picture of our sins going into oblivion, He has to go and be washed with pure water. And that's what it's talking about here. This isn't the command to be water baptized, although you might find it elsewhere. This is referring to the bodies washed by purifying water, holding fast, and that's where we'll end today. Holding fast, it says, 
kateko, same verb, holding on, grasping firmly, holding on, fast, kateko. It even sounds like a strong word, kateko, K-A-T-E-C-H-O, holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. Now, this, doesn't, this isn't taken seriously by American Christians today because it no longer costs you something to give your testimony. It will someday cost you something as it does for Christians in China or Christians in the Sudan or Christians across this world today who are being butchered and killed for their faith, disfranchised, their houses are being removed by operational machinery in China, their churches are being destroyed, it costs them something. And it will someday perhaps to us. Today it maybe costs a little bit of social shaming. So what? So, he who promised is faithful. So, he who promised to build a faithful house for his faithful priest is faithful. We show ourselves to be that house by holding fast the boast in the Lord that is our hope. That's how we show ourselves to be the house that God is building for his faithful priest. That's how we show ourselves to be the church that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That doesn't mean the gates are coming after you. It means we're going after the gates and kicking them in. The gates of Hades means the realm of death. It doesn't stand a chance because in Christ all will be made alive. We're the church. That's our advance. That's why we go forward with a bold confession. The way that we hold fast to this confident hope without wavering. And there's only one way to do it. And that's by hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit day by day. Today, verse 7, that's where we're going next. Today, if you hear his voice. Don't harden your hearts like a certain group of people did the subject of Psalm 95, 7 through 11. And the results were not pretty at all. So, the Holy Spirit, whom God has placed on and in us all as believers, speaks afresh through the Scripture. It's impossible to overestimate the value of hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit today and every day. And we're going to see this clearly as we go on to the next section of Hebrews which again is all in the style of what is known as a midrash or an exposition. This time it will be on Psalm 95, 7b through 11. LXX 94, 7b to 11. I say LXX instead of Septuagint because it drives certain of my friends crazy. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We've not committed or entrusted our spirit to you in vain. For you have indeed encouraged us by your word. We pray that we'll receive the incentive that we got today by the Holy Spirit for forward progress in your plan, in your purpose, in your will. We thank you that you have provided for our assembly now for months in our separation from one another. 
We expect that from you because you are faithful. We're grateful for it. We pray that you'll bless the treasures for children and that it will result in the joy of many kids who otherwise may not have that joy. And we thank you again in Christ's name. Amen.